0: Coming up in this week's episode of Destination Linux, we deep dive into the topic of open source. Is it still important or should we just welcome this proprietary stuff with open arms? Cute company and KDE's future, Raspberry Pi projects, and then Intel gets a boost. All of this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode number 169. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is a show for all experience levels. So whether you're a beginner to Linux or a master sudoer, welcome to the show. I'm Ryan and with me today are the hidden Easter eggs of Linux, Michael, Noah, and Dustin. That seems apt, sure. You know, (laughs) Let's yep. find out what everyone's been up to this week. Dustin, first of all, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on again. What's been happening in your world, or should I say the world of Ubuntu Budgie? Because they all intermingle in my mind anyways. Well, thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, it's been mostly about the Ubuntu testing week. That's been going on the last couple of days coordinating between all the different flavors. So it was a great team effort on that one. And there was a good push on that. Other than that, we've just been working on our own 2004 release, which, as we all know, is coming out this month.
0: What are some new things that are going to be in the Ubuntu budgie? I noticed that your Tyler Shuffler is getting some love along with some other things.
1: David's taken, uh, he's ported the elementary menu. So we have a new app menu over and he's added some additional features uh, with things like uh, the power strip. You can add it in there. And he he had to kind of tweak it to make it work in uh, with the Debian packaging. Shuffler, as you mentioned, has got some new animations and just makes some window management a little easier. We've got, I don't know, let's see, uh, Wall Street. It's kind of a new wallpaper shuffler, I guess. (laughs) I I don't I shouldn't have used that word, but uh, rotator. Uh, Shuffler works. I like it. Just everything needs to be called Shuffler now. Yeah, <laughs> it's the new Shuffler distro. That's all we got. Nothing but. Um, no like the K from, and KDE, just put Shuffler in front of everything. <clears throat> sure, the Shuffler not. desktop with the Shuffler menu and the <laughs> Shuffler network applet <laughs> and the Shuffler
0: 4K support. I like it.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, better 4K support on the applets. Uh, we got uh, desktop layouts now. gnome firmware is in there to help you update your uh, hardware a little easier. So, you know, just a lot of the usual
0: fun stuff. And are you guys getting plenty of people helping out with testing or is that something you're still out there calling for more assistance with?
1: Well, there was a big push this time to get all the flavors to work together. So there was a coordinated effort which included an IRC channel, a Telegram group that's bridged and everyone has kind of been pushing together this time around rather than everyone trying to individually knock off their own testing. So there's been a much larger engagement from the community so it's been awesome
0: that's great to hear that's fantastic
1: yeah. well and i mean it also helped like poppy was putting out some uh videos on youtube about how to open bugs and so everyone was referencing that stuff and it it's just much tighter this time around it feels
0: very cool well thanks for coming on to help us host and uh, michael what have you been up to this week
2: well, I've actually
0: been working on a
2: lot of stuff and including Front Page Linux and I have something really uh, cool to talk about in that. Uh, so there's, uh, we had a couple emails and we have some people asking us about getting RSS feeds to be able to subscribe to different pieces of the site and everything. And we were able to p- publish the RSS feed for like a week ago. That is a complete feed for everything on the site, which a lot of people ask for. But I also wanted to go like a step above that and create a RSS feed for basically every section so any section you want to go to where it's news tutorials or articles or whatever there are RSS feeds for each of those and because I like to go over you know a little bit excessive uh, there's also a tagging system in the website so each specific distro or each specific topic has a tag system and each one of those tags has a feed attached to it so you can subscribe to it. Is, is as modular and detailed as you want to, or get it all in one. And we have actually have, a, we're going to have a, a link in the show notes that gives you a list of all of the different te- uh, feeds that you can get
0: uh, from there. So I think Look that is pretty Look at you being awesome. all extra. Right? I think it's I pretty love awesome. it. yeah. He's
1: a professional.
0: Yeah, Sometimes. he is. And Front Page <laughs> Linux, if you haven't heard of it yet, is the Destination Linux Network site where we have folks like Eric Londo, Alex Brown, Mark Gilligan, myself, Michael, Jason Evangelo, Eric Adams, Nathan Wolf, writing articles in Linux out there. So go check it out. Tutorials, articles, events, things that are going on in the community. It's a fantastic site, and uh, we want you to go check it out. So Noah, what's been new in your world, sir?
3: Well, Self has been officially canceled. So there will be no in-person self as many other conferences are doing. Self is doing the same. However, we've been working with Jeremy uh, Sands, the, the benevolent leader of self. And what we are going to do in the past, many people are aware that what we've done is provided a remote attendee opportunity for people to come and attend Southeast Linux Fest from anywhere. Now, obviously, you can't replace the... Uh, experience that you would get from attending self in person. The hallway track is just inexplainable and we want to encourage people to do that. But in a year that we can't, all of the resources that we would usually be focusing on trying to create an in-person experience, we are shifting to a virtualized experience. And so self is going to host the remote attendee option only and yours truly, as well as the rest of the media team, is going to be in charge of that and, and getting that up and running. So the same content that we brought you for the last five years from Southeast Linux, right from the show floor, we're going to bring you that same content. It's going to be streamed live. We, are, uh, we have an entirely new Matrix instance that has been spun up. And so you will have the opportunity to participate and attend virtually. You'll be able to ask questions to presenters. You'll be able to interact we are going to have, uh, in between the actual presenters, we are our pre-recording bits that we're going to be airing, so things like how-tos and tutorials, and uh, small little things that might have ordinarily been show segments, but we're going to condense those down into two to five minutes and we're going to run those in between the presenters. So if you want a weekend experience, you want to sit down at your computer, uh, log in, everything is going to be free, open source, running on Linux. So you're not going to need to install any sort of proprietary clients, any sort of privacy invading um, applications, nothing like that. Everything will be able to, you actually probably be able to do it right from a web browser. Um, and we are going to present the experience that you would get at self as close as we can live over three days, the same weekend to self. Oh, that's fantastic. Guys. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm pretty excited. And, and, you know, the thing is, it's one of those things where any other industry and any other conference, you would probably say, well, if we can't meet in person, we just can't do it. But the truth is there are two magical ingredients to self. The first is Noah,
0: who the- knows all the audio equipment and ways <laughs> right. to send video and audio than the type of remote way. Yes.
3: Yeah. The, 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 the broadcast studio doesn't hurt to have as a resource. That's yeah. for sure. But but no, the, the, the two main ingredients are the intelligence and the skill level of the people that present. And they have information that I think is fundamentally valuable to anybody um, doing any sort of IT job. And so that's not going to be taken away from you. And the second part is the community. And while that's not going to be the same experience that you've maybe had Self in the past, we are going to aim to have the type of community hangouts and the, and, and the kind of uh, community interaction that you would expect. Now, I am going to be purchasing Chinese food and that will be my lunch. All three oh, days in a row. Yes.
0: For people who don't know the reference, if you know Noah's a really kind person and a lot of people want to go to lunch with him right. when we're at self. So many people, in fact, that he takes over whatever restaurant he decides he's gonna go to, which always happens to be the crappiest Chinese restaurant in the no, entire it area. just
3: happens to be the Chinese restaurant that we we decide to go to. Because I don't care what Chinese restaurant <laughs> we go to, I just want Chinese one time at self. That's it. This time I'm going to eat Chinese the whole time. I'm going to have myself a 72 hour (laughs) Chinese buffet and no one's going to be able to stop me because I'll be behind my webcam. Fine. You do that. No, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited. I think it's going to be really fun. I think it's going to be a very unique experience. And I think most importantly, I think what it does is it sets the stage going forward that. Because of the industry that we exist in, and because of our technological experience, and because of all the hard work of the people that put together a lot of open source products and solutions, that we are able to essentially stand up a virtualized community representation of self, and we're going to be able to present that to people, and I'm really excited about that.
0: I'm excited about that too. Because look, the easy route is to say, sorry, no self this year. Too bad, everyone. We'll try to see you next year. The hard way, the hard way out of this is to say, hey, we're going to try to still figure out how to give you some of that experience as much as possible. And you're doing that. And I can't wait because that means we get to see and meet a lot of the people that we only get to see usually during the self event. And as we hang out with you, you're going to be eating Chinese food. We're going to be eating good Chinese and other food.
3: And I'll have the best Chinese. I'll have the best Chinese. Nobody okay, has you, better Chinese. All my friends say I have good Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So, are are we going to be?
2: Is this going to be like named self quarantined?
3: No. It, so, one of the things that I, 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 I think That's a all good of marketing us marketing
0: opportunity. To... I
3: agree. I agree. But I one of the things that I think that we all feel very strongly about at self is that there just is no replacing the in person experience and every one of the when we we've had a couple of meetings about this now and everybody on the leadership team itself feels the same way that you that the the in-person experience just cannot be replaced And the other side of that is this is not something new. I think that it's important to point out that we have been doing this for three years now, uh, providing an opportunity for people to participate in self no matter where they are. The last two years, it's been a formalized experience in that we've asked you to contribute something to help offset the tremendous cost it burdens us with to provide that. And of course, this year, given the circumstances, the remote attendee option is going to be free. So what what I would tell you is, no, there's not going to be any clever branding because it is this part of self is going to exist every year after and has existed for the past two years. And so if we were going to rebrand the remote attendee option as something, we might do that. But I think the important thing here, the message here is that we were prepared for COVID and isolation and providing and the ability to provide the self experience to anybody, no matter where you are and what your resources are, we've already been doing that. So we're just going to continue to do that. But instead of, picking a, a few select talks now every talk is going to be streamed every talk that we host this year yeah
0: so people can get more information i assume by hanging out at the self website and just checking it for updates on how yep. they can attend and is there going to be an opportunity for people to donate if they want to to help support the
3: Yes, we'll have an opportunity to, to donate. We will have uh, southeastlinuxfest.org is where all of the official announcements will be. Of course, you can also find one of the things that we're going to do is we are we've we've started building a lot of infrastructure for the Linux Delta website. And so when when you start looking at while we want to do self live, well, it's very easy then for us to just pick that infrastructure up, set it back over on the self site. Say here now we're going to stream all this stuff, and then when that's over, pick it back up and set it back over on the Linux Delta site, and that resource can continue to exist year round. And so we're trying to do it. It's costing a lot of money, but we're going to do it once and we're going to do it right. And that will, I think we're going to fundamentally change the way that people attend self remotely. And I'm excited to make that the best possible experience.
0: Well, Destination Lakes Crew is certainly going to represent there as well. So if you want to hang out with us, definitely sign up and be ready to go.
2: Yeah, that That would be awesome. So Ryan, what's what's new in your world?
0: Well, you know, we have the podcast Hardware Addicts out there. We got our seventh episode out which was fantastic. This time we went through the very fanboy-filled, enjoyable topic of console wars. So It was that not was...
2: controversial
0: at all. <laughs> no, never, never. Nothing we ever do is controversial. So if you're interested in our take on the hardware there, check out that episode. But what I wanted to talk about is we've been discussing Manjaro a lot on this show. Michael, you discussed specifically, you hadn't hopped in, I don't know, a decade so let's just right. put it at a decade, it's somewhere between years. a decade and it's
2: been five years. Well,
0: close enough. Anyway, <laughs> the point is you're finally <laughs> in, on in Manjaro world, now. Kind of. You're doing the show in Manjaro. I think this is your second week. This is my third or fourth week in Manjaro. How's it going? Um, it's going pretty good. I mean, I've
2: seen some issues here and there, but not any big things that I could easily fix. And, you know, there's there's things that I wanted to improve that I really like the fact that they're very open to suggestions and I was able to already have like three or four of my suggestions implemented. So that's awesome. Uh, so this is is really interesting to, to kind of try out a new distribution and also to have that kind of experience where they're so open to the feedback. Uh, but I really like it for the most part. And I have to say that I think one of the impressive things about it is that I actually haven't used the Terminal for managing applications, installing things, or whatever, since installing it. So I, I could, but I chose to test out their software center and see how far could I go with it. And so far, I haven't really had any big problems. There's some slight confusing terminology, some places here and there, and the searching thing is not obvious. But for the most part, it's, it's quite good, and I haven't had to even drop down the terminal to use Pac-Man or anything once.
0: Yeah, I'm quite addicted to it myself. And in fact, my whole patron group seems to be getting addicted to it as well. Everybody who's been trying it out as part of our rolling distro challenge where we're trying to find the most stable rolling distro is pretty much like stop. Like, I don't want to test anything else. We're good. We'll just stop at Manjaro. We're good. So there's something to be said there. I just wanted to get an update on how you're doing, but I'm loving it as well. I'm sticking with it. I want to see how far we can go. I did Arch for over a year with, you know, very, very good stability. And I'm hoping the Manjaro experience is the same. So we'll
2: see. I think Arch is quite good. good, And I think Manjaro is a very nice polished example of Arch as the base. Uh, I also like, and think Endeavor is really good and it needs to get a little bit more attention than it does. So people check that out too. But uh, Manjaro is a, a really nice polished package that I, that I like. So, so far, I mean, I don't have anything really bit negative to say about it. So I look forward to seeing how, how far this can go.
0: Very cool. This episode of Destination Linux and the entire DLN network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. The best part is you can get all of this and the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure and get it for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That, my friends, is darn near free. This is how good it is. So I've been learning more about Python. In fact, it's kind of a requirement now. I'm taking some courses through Michigan State to learn Python. And I needed to spin up a quick server with Django on it and Python because I wanted to see some of the uh, web framework portions of Python. I was able to do it in just seconds. Because in their marketplace in DigitalOcean, they have a droplet that you can just click and drop and have the Django server and everything up and running immediately so that I could start playing in there and learning more about it and getting ahead in class. That is some of the powerful applications of using DigitalOcean. And the best part is it was a $5 droplet. So it'll take me a month to complete this class, get the certification. It cost me a whole $5 to do and take all the extra tutorials and things that they have out there for free. To make it sure that I can pass this class. And that's the type of thing that DigitalOcean has that makes it such an amazing offering. So, if you have not gone out there and checked out DigitalOcean yet, you need to. They have over 2,000 of those cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. That's do.co slash dln. That tells them. That you were listening to this show, and that we sent you there, and thank them for sponsoring all of the episodes and all of the shows on Destination Linux Network. And we're just huge fans of DigitalOcean. Hope you check them out: do.co/dln.
3: Dale writes in to say that he's a 14-year Kubuntu user with an observation. He installed Blender to make things for Godot and installed the Snap version on Kubuntu 19.10 for Godot. He needed the better Kalada exporter plugin, So he downloaded it, he unzipped it, moved it to the plugins folder in Blender. Now, he says he couldn't do it. Snaps, at least this one, don't install into the user area. And since KDE Plasma Dolphin uses root is broken and apparently will never be fixed, he couldn't find an easy way around it, so his easy way around it was to remove the snap in Blender, go to the Blender website, download for Linux, unzip it into his user space, and that worked like a charm. He'll likely never use the snap again unless that's the only way to install something. He asks, is this a bug or a feature? Is this how AppImage or Flatpak works? Last but not least, this is a 14-year Kubuntu user and just switched to Manjaro, and he you. doesn't like it at <laughs> Okay, fine. He loves it. Sorry. (laughs) If he switches to the testing repo, which he has done, does that mean that I can say that he runs Arch? Love, Dale. Um, So first of all, yes, that means that you can say that you run Arch, Manjaro yes. Cons is Arch. Yes. And second of all, um, yes, that is the way that snaps and flat packs are designed to work. The, the, the idea is it gives them access to the least amount of, of access on your system possible. Now, there's all sorts of flags that you can use that will give um, certain, certain snap packages access to more of the system. And so, for example, I install Telegram this way because I want Telegram to be able to save to a different download folder than just the little snap folder that it does by default. I'm curious, um, I, I guess Michael or, or Ryan, do either of you f- run into problems with snaps um, and, and their permission issues? I know I've, I've hit an issue where it doesn't respect my system theming and that drives me nuts and it's actually one of the reasons I don't use snaps in certain situations.
0: I mean, I'll be honest. I use snaps, flat packs, app images, whatever's available depending on the project if it's not in the repository already. So it's not something I'll go out there and just look for. So I have a very limited amount of, even though I say that I have a very limited amount of them because for the most part, I'm going to look in the general repository first. And then if that's not available, then I'll check a snap or flat pack or an app image. So I don't really run into a lot of issues with the type of programs that I use like Joplin and others where it's just not something where you have any permission issues, but I could certainly see that being, an issue for people who are utilizing uh, those for different applications. I was curious, Dustin. I would think you would hear a lot more about this being in the Ubuntu Budgie world and doing a lot of the server work that you do. Do you run into those type of issues with the universal packages? Well, there's always going to be some issues, but here's the thing that people need to
1: take into consideration. Depending on who's built the uh, confined application, sometimes dictates what the experience looks like. Right? Like people like to blame the packaging format, but the reality is, is third parties can package these applications. It's not always the upstream developer. It's not always someone who may be super knowledgeable of these formats. And depending on how you author it depends on how the user experience looks like, right? So if you forget to use one of the uh, plugs in a snap package and you don't grant it particular access or permissions, something's not going to work. In this specific email, one thing that stuck out to me is he's speaking about how he can't put something in the plugins folder because it doesn't install into the traditional locations. What some people may or may not know is that within your home folder, there's a snap directory where it keeps your user data. And so if you're reading documentation and an application saying, hey, here's where you put these plugins, you have to kind of consider, and and, and this is maybe one of the, I don't want to say it's a failure, but caveats or things that need to be smoothed out is the universal packaging formats usually have a relative path within the confined environment. So if the plugins folder exists in location A, in this, I'm going to use snap as an example because I haven't packaged any of the other ones. There will be a relative path, usually in your home directory that you can still have things like plugins or additional data that you need to do for configuration. So uh, a lot of applications instead of being in your dot config folder it'll be in like slash snap slash snap name slash dot con- or slash current slash dot config, and there it goes. So there's a couple of little oddities and things like this, but it's a little bit of user education. It's about these things kind of getting to this point where they're commonplace, I guess, to where people are aware of these sort of caveats. And the tutorials are
0: updated to reflect it, right? Because like you said, if you're looking at a website and it has a tutorial to show you, you know, navigate here and then put it there, that's what people who may not be experienced and assume that's where everything goes, not realizing why use the snap version, I need to go through a different path. But
1: see, here's the thing. If the upstream developer didn't package that application, they're not going to update their documentation to do it. So if just someone in the community decides to package application a, a, really good point. they may not go to the application author and say, hey, do you want to add this to your installation instructions? Here's the caveats. Here's how it works. Here's what you need to do that's different. Uh, most people probably won't even think about that. They're just so happy to get the darn thing into a store and make it easy to install that there's other aspects that just kind of go over the head and, and maybe aren't considered. And, you know, it, it'll it get there as bec- people become more familiar, but there's so just, don't throw the baby out with
0: the bathwater. hang in yeah, there. Yeah. Things will get worked out as yeah. we don't, don't yeah. throw out universal packaging yeah, I, just yet or write it off.
3: Type of so I, if I can add an addendum to that, I would say, don't, permanently throw out the baby with the bathwater. At the moment, there are absolutely times where I choose not to use a snap package because of some of the lack of functionality or lack of integration in with the system. Um, it's early days, I think, for universal packaging. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that it, this is not what it's going to look like long-term. And I don't think there's any rush to to get onto um, to universal packaging. If it's the only way to get an application, so be it. But if you have another option, and there if, if it's in if it's if you could just sudo apt install a package versus pseudo snap install package and you want to do that because you get a little more functionality, I don't see anything wrong with that for a little while.
2: You well also I mean? the, the idea is that this this per, this email is saying that uh there's it's saying that I'll never use a snap again unless I the like the option. There I, I would say that right. there's there's definitely a lot of snaps that are good options and actually better than the basic regular repo install. For right. example, right. Discord. Yeah the the compression on the snap for discord is like you're saving a, like 60% of the storage space by using the snap versus the regular version because it's just they a, do they even
3: have a regular version?
2: Yeah, you can get a regular depending oh, on your distro you can get you yeah. can get different versions, yeah. Uh okay. but the the snap is is a lot cleaner experience and and like it doesn't need to be using the theme of the system so it looks good regardless like there there are mm-hmm. different aspects where it's not a big deal. And I actually choose to use the universals more than the basic uh, repos because I just prefer to have the option to, you know, be, be able to move my files or like, for example, I use app images and have them on a specific folder on my separate drive so that I have them always available no matter what distro I'm in. And I can have my settings being synced back and forth much easier as well. So like, I think there's a lot of value in these universal formats, not only just because they add some convenience, but they also make it possible to bring in applications we might not normally have. So I think that this, these formats are very, very important and they shouldn't be ignored from a few issues here and there. Like, for example, the blender snap didn't work for you for the particular reason that you have. I would say first do what uh, Dustin said and test the plug-in system through the relative path. And then if that still doesn't work for you, then you can just, you know, you don't have to use that snap. But that doesn't mean you or should most abandon it. Importantly, snaps. if
0: I can add to that, you know, Dale's obviously a highly intelligent individual because he uses Arch. So with that, take that information that you find on that snap and go to the person who's packaging that, if it's if it's the official or not, and open a bug report on that because it may be something nobody's saying anything about it. Nobody's fixing it if it's an issue that you can't get to it through a relative path. And this is kind of, we'll get into this in the open source section of this, but this is kind of our responsibility in the open source community is to take the time when we find issues that are frustrating and not assume that somebody else has reported it because there's probably a thousand people like you that just assume, well, they just don't put it in there because they're mean people. But maybe if somebody you know opens a bug report and puts it there they'll go up there and be able to fix it maybe not but you have an alternative if if not but certainly you can try that i think you should always at least open a bug report and there's
2: also issues of people not knowing what people expect to function like so they're not thinking about that so you kind of bring it to their attention that way if you let them know so you definitely should do that the uh the real takeaway
1: here is you got to use what works for you whether it's your distro whether it's your packaging format if it doesn't work for you find what does what People talk about opening these bug reports and things like that. If you want to find out more about these information, for example, again, I'm going to speak specifically to Snap. Like if you go to form.snapcraft.io, they will help you work through this stuff. They have made it quite approachable by using a form rather than a bug tracker for people to get involved and even just ask questions about specific snaps. So they've done a pretty good job there. Very nice. Leap writes us to say, hello, my dear friends from Destination Linux. What a great opener. Next month, we will have elections for the Debian project leader. I would appreciate your comments and thoughts on the elections itself and also some present and future perspectives on Debian. Debian is one of the first Linux distributions and currently the main one being the base of the largest family of Linux distributions.
0: So I thought this was interesting. I don't know what your take, Dustin, is on it, but I read through some of the individuals uh, on this website who are basically trying to get nominated, and they have their nomination emails in there that they're writing to the community saying why they should be picked. I think Debian, in my mind, is one of those projects that desperately needs new leadership, new, new direction, Right. And because they're so important to the overall infrastructure of Linux, it's such a critical project. And you want the right leader in there that's going to kind of push and innovate and bring a new vision in. In my mind, never before has Debian needed it more. I look at some of the nomination emails here and I see one liners like, I'd like to nominate myself as a DPL candidate. And one of them is, Basically, three sentences. I will share details on my platform later on, blah, blah, blah. And then there's one here by Jonathan Carter, I believe, which is a full detailed rundown of everything that he wants to do with Debian to bring it current. And I would say, you know, if you're somebody who's ever hired people and you're looking at resumes and you get two resumes where it's one sentence and you get one resume where actually somebody thoughtfully wrote out everything that they're wanting to accomplish and working with you and put a nice cover letter on it. It's pretty obvious based on the three candidates they have listed on the site who they should be picking here if these are the only three choices.
3: How many How many resumes, Ryan, have you... Do you have no idea what the content is because you never actually opened them because there was nothing there that compelled you to open them? I got yeah, a whole I'm, box. I got a whole box of people that applied that it looks like some sort of generic thing they printed off of Microsoft Office tells me nothing about that person whatsoever. It's, so it's a constant a problem
0: you run into. And, and it's even worse in corporate America because we have pre-filters. So I don't even get to see 50,000 resumes. I'll see the 50,000 people applied to a job that we have opening, but I have I, I see probably 10 of those resumes because we have systems and filters and keywords that basically take all of that junk, throw it into the garbage and only send me the ones where people actually took the time to customize the resume for the specific job they're applying for. So there's some, there's some hints in there for those who are looking for jobs. But yeah, I mean, Jonathan Carter looks like he's got this uh, nailed down pretty good. He's got some good ideas here on things that when I was reading through it, he wanted to do with Debian um, to bring it in more current. And I think that's something they desperately need. I don't know if there's any more outside of just these three, or these are literally out of the biggest, this giant Linux foundation project only three people total have even had any interest in running for it but in any case the voting period is from 4 5 to 4 18 so there's not a lot of time left by the time the show comes out for you to get out there and get involved if you are interested in debian and the future of debian you know take a look and figure out who you want to back on here but to me the answer is pretty clear
1: it's first impressions
0: right yep absolutely
2: Yeah. And also, if you care enough to put the the effort, the time in to actually express your ideas, then people can actually make their decision on who to vote for easier. And if you have a message where it says, I'll give you details later, it's like, "Okay, well, then I'll have to find where you give me those details. So that's not helpful. You know, I I agree that this is a a better approach, but I don't know who I would vote for because I I would have to like, you know, do you're voting
0: for Jonathan Carter. We're getting you a shirt next week. So you're going to put it on and you're voting for him. (laughs) All right, cool. All right. Awesome. We've decided. Yes.
3: We love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or video that may get incorporated into the show. You can send those to comments at destinationlinux.org. So I'm so
0: excited this week for the topic that we're going to cover, especially because we have Dustin here. And I think, Dustin, you're going to provide some really unique perspective on this topic because there's a lot been going on in the community discussing the ins and outs of this. And Well, it'll be interesting to have a different person's take on it. So with so many users coming to Linux for the first time and so many proprietary software offerings now being made to Linux for the first time, we thought it was important for us to all kind of take a look at the root of Linux and the open source movement. There are times, of course, and this isn't what we're going to really get into too much, in which your work dictates you have to use a proprietary solution or there's a specific function that you do for your own home business where you have to use a proprietary solution. What we're seeing is a lot of people in the community just going plain for the proprietary solutions to start off with. So we want to kind of take a moment and talk about open source and the differences between them because there's a lot of new people flooding into Linux. Maybe they don't understand or haven't heard somebody actually talk about, well, why is open source something that's important to begin with? So, before we get into some of the definitions and things, because that could get rather boring, let's just go around and ask the host, because I think that would be interesting to know why is open source something that's important to you? So, I want to start with you, Noah. Why is open source even a consideration for you? You've got a business. You make money so you can spend money. In fact, to reduce your taxes, you probably need to spend a certain amount of money every year to go buy things like software and all this stuff. So why not just spend it on proprietary solutions and have a much easier life?
3: I grew up in a home in where my parents were fortunate enough to, uh, to understand technology uh, to the extent that they were willing to allow me to experiment with it in a limited capacity. That is to say, I, I was able to go to thrift stores and buy some tech and kind of rehab Com- older computers and stuff like that. As I got older and and continued to to persist with that, eventually I convinced my parents to to let me spend some money on on some real hardware, and so I was able to experience it in a limited way. And one of the things that I came across in a in a in a really shocking light was that I would go to learn Photoshop. Hey, I want to learn how to edit photos. Great. How do you do that? Photoshop. Okay. How do I get that? Oh, Oh, five hundred dollars. Well, as a nine year old, ten year old. I don't have $500 to spend on a piece of software. So what do you do? And the older I get, the more I start realizing, well, now I have this first job. And well, can you make this graphic for us? Well, sure. How do you know how to do that? Well, I use this program called Photoshop. Oh, okay. How do we get that for you? Well, it's $500, $500. We don't have that. What else can you do? Could you do it in MS Paint? And and And, and, and enough times of that experiencing occurring, I eventually got to the point where I really hated the fact that... I was living inside of this mock prison cell because anytime I wanted to actually experiment and explore technology and more importantly, share technology, I get a friend that comes over, Hey, look at this cool thing I can do in Photoshop. Oh, can I have that? Sure. Spend $500. And every time, every time I turn a corner in life, it was another $500 that I had to spend on, on one piece of software or the other. And, and, and that was very crippling as, as somebody who was, growing up trying to explore technology and so when i discovered open source and consistently and over time every time i would find an open source product like inkscape was one of the first ones that i landed on what hey i can do all the things that i was previously doing in adobe products and now it's open source and i can install it anywhere and i own that software and what i found was uh it was much easier for me to share technology it was much easier for me to explore technology i got more proficient with technology because every computer that I sat down at or every client that I worked at or every job that I had, I had no problem bringing my own tooling in because they were just available to me and the company didn't have to sign off on them because there was no no cost necessarily associated with them. And as I continued to get into bigger and larger businesses with bigger and larger budgets, what I found is if you have $25,000 and you apply that towards proprietary software development, You get $25,000 worth of software, but you take that same $25,000 and you put it into the open source community or you hire a developer to fix some itches and all of a sudden you get the equivalent of $50,000 worth of work done because half the people are going, hey, this project is going somewhere. This is fantastic. Let's go ahead and jump on board. And so I found that the return on investment was higher. I found that my, the, the overall quality of software was higher. I found that the longevity was higher. I found that the vendor lock-in was lower. The security was higher. My personal experience was better. And my ability to share technology and lower that technology divide for other people that were less fortunate was greater. And so when I look at all of those things and I kind of sit back and look at that 30,000 foot global picture, what I see is that there is absolutely nothing beneficial to proprietary software, locked-in vendor solutions that one company owns and one company controls. And where the real benefit to us as independent, individual human beings that want to use technology to better our lives, the best solutions exist in places where they're not trying to mine your privacy, they're not trying to control what you do, they're not trying to take money out of your wallet unless you voluntarily want to donate, and you should, back to those companies and people and individuals who are providing that software and product to you. It's a net win all the way around. I I just can't be any more honest than that.
0: I love it. I you you share a lot of the same reasons that got me into open source. It started with security, as everybody knows, you know, my story and looking into security and privacy, but then I saw and recognized this issue of the digital divide and realized, like you, that it's great that I've been able to go out there and accumulate five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars worth of licenses. But when I have friends come over that are getting just going through school, maybe their their families aren't doing so well. They're going through issues. They don't have money. And I'm like, hey, look at this cool thing I'm doing. Oh, I want to do that. Well, you can't because it's $500. It's It's just it removes so many people. There's so many kids out there that want to be musicians. They want to be artists. They want to do 3D printing. They want to get involved in programming. They can't afford the licenses to even get involved in this stuff. And I think it's just so important as a community that we recognize this is such a good discussion topic. Um, because it's so important as a community that I think we think about recalibrating on this idea that everyone's kind of going out there, I'm hearing, and saying, hey, proprietary, proprietary use whatever works. Just use whatever works. Go get the proprietary thing. And
3: yes, there are circumstances. It's just a tool. Don't treat it like a, a religion.
0: Exactly. This this whole thing is driving me driving me personally a little nuts. But also, I think we have to think, yes, there are cases where that's true. But if we all go that route, there's going to be no there's going to be no open source stuff left for us to go give out that's going to be worth anything. So I think it's important that we don't mix that message of, yeah, let's accept everyone. If you have to use that tool, that's fine. Versus, hey, go use that stuff first. It's just a tool. It doesn't matter because that message to me that's going out in the Linux community right now, it's it's not my favorite direction that we're going in. So Dustin, you generally have a very different, very well-balanced view on these things. Me and you get in these deep discussions late at night where we're, we're battling for this. So what are your thoughts on this, uh, on open source? First of all, let's start there. What, why is open source important to you?
1: Well, okay. So yes, I am a little more pragmatic in my selection now. I don't believe in necessarily just going and buying the first thing off the shelf. I, I don't. To me, the open source is about accessibility. And confidence. And what I mean by that is if you look at the accessibility point of view, is accessibility can be determined by how accessible is the software mean. Can I get it? There's no barrier to entry with cost. And this could be in personal life, this could be in corporate life, right? Like there's many times where I've rolled out solutions at uh, uh, former employers because I didn't have to go write a report to get funding. Now, confidence comes in on that because I actually knew that I could go grab that software and whatever I was going to implement, I had access to a game back to the accessibility, whether it's source code, information documentation. If there's something that didn't work for me, I had the ability, like the feedback loops are so much tighter and smaller. Like if let's just, if you look at a commercial product, I don't know any hypervisor that's commercial. Like if you, had a problem. Yeah, you can open a bug ticket, you can do a feature request, and then you're drowned out in a thousand voices. Uh, If you look at some of the open source hypervisors, like you can just go start talking to the uh, developers. Isn't that
0: amazing? I love that. If
1: you have the um, knowledge, you can even go one step further and you can actually change it. You can actually submit a PR. You can actually make a change to the product that you know, depending on the project, could be one people, it could be millions of people that are going to use it, you know, and it keeps coming back for me about accessibilities. People, it's, it's freedom to use open source and however it works for you. Some people can use open source to build their resume. Some people can use open source as just a hobby, a pastime, something for fun to do. They may use it just to increase their knowledge because they're curious You know, whether it's a kid who has an interest to actually learn to write a game, you know, is it going to be a career? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, is you can take what you want from it and you can do whatever the heck you want with it. And the best part is, is if you use something today that maybe the project goes away, nine out of 10, there's any number of alternatives. The data sources are probably going to be transferable. You're not going to be stuck you always have an option, you know? Like if you even talk about any number of projects, like you look at, uh, I don't know, like Glimpse, right? Okay, people didn't like the name. What did they do? They ran with, or sorry, Gimp. They renamed it to, they forked it and renamed it to Glimpse. Like you can do whatever you want. Do they always make sense? Maybe not, but the reality is you have the freedom and the accessibility to do so.
0: Very nice. And Michael, what is open source why is it important to you? Why is this something the community should care about? Well, first of all, I do want to say that
2: I think that, that the, I agree with your statements earlier about how that there's you know not necessarily a good thing to be promoting that it's, you know, it's perfectly fine always. And, you know, promoting that, that it's, you know, just go for it first and don't even consider the options. I would say that, you know, consider the options, but if the best option is the proprietary, that that's also a pragmatic thing and that's fine. Uh, but, in terms of open source, my it means a, like an important thing to me because my entire, uh, I guess my entire character is, is fundamentally on the idea of the of the freedom and the the sharing and the cooperation of you know the, the open source community and the, the open source philosophy overall. Because when I first started using Linux, it was in the nineties, like early nineties, not early late nineties, but early for me, and it was uh, it was basically like nineteen ninety nine. And I didn't hear of open source until after starting to use Linux. And then I learned about how I was able to get Linux and what it meant to have an open source operating system, an open source structure and everything. And then from that point, I wanted to learn so much more. I wanted to find out, you know, how did this code work? What was an operating system? All these different things. And the only way for me to do that was to look at open source software. Because if I was to try to figure out how a piece of software was like... How, like, for example, y'all said Photoshop. How, how would you find out how Photoshop was made? Well, that's impossible because it's proprietary and there's no way to find the code and they're not going to give you any APIs or anything. And when I found other different software, like various different software, I wanted to learn programming. Uh, I didn't become a programmer. I just was interested in how the software was made in the first place. And from there, I did learn some a- aspects of programming. And it made it easier for me to transition to knowing how to work with programmers as a designer because that's what my preference was. And I could then take their ideas and know what they wanted it to look like because I knew what some of the code meant. And the only way for me to ever do that was through open source. So it's an incredibly important piece of my, you know, my, my, I guess, career is that open source helped me mold what I, what I, what I do and I guess even what I what I am like who I am kind of thing, and because this is the freedom of access and the freedom of control and the freedom of ability to actually use the software without having to worry. Uh, money is that it was was a factor for sure because I started when I was a kid, but it's also a, a useful thing for not only just I don't want to focus on the money aspect because that's great for for kids, but also. There is some kind of like weird entitlement thing that comes from that where people think that they, it has to be free and they're entitled to getting it for free and that kind of thing. It's like, yes, it is free, but if you have the money to give money to the projects, do so. But it's the main thing that having the access and having the developers open to the input that you have is so powerful that it's a fundamental core element to how this show works, how this network works, how. Everything I do in my career works so
0: well, I think that's an interesting you know, point because you and Noah both essentially make your living off of open source. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely.
3: And and fun and so funny story about that and a funny interweave. When Michael and I do collaboration projects if and I've handed a couple clients off to him and said here the, the nice thing about that workflow is I don't ever have to worry about well is he gonna is he gonna provide a deliverable file that the client isn't going to be able to open what about the source no it doesn't matter because I know that everything is going to exist in one ecosystem so because Michael and I both base our workflows on open source the benefit is not only to him and I, But anybody that works with him and I, right, all the software that we use, you can just install and you have access to all the source files.
0: Yep. So I want to share some of our patron thoughts here as well. So Michael S. says, source is about control. The person who owns the source controls the program. In proprietary software, that's a company. In open source, that's the community. The community can better identify problems and offer solutions for their own problems than an outside company. I thought that was well said there. Larry J says, I've been on open source since 2005. And after this length of time, I really take it for granted until recently. I never donated back to the community. I don't have anything that requires it, but I just choose it. So I love that. I love, look, I think a, a lot of people in the community kind of took it for granted. We didn't think about all of the time and effort that goes into building one of these projects. Believe it or not, Dustin, who works on Ubuntu Budgie, actually has a full-time job and a family and friends and everything else in a community that he's involved with. Then he has to stop that to go work on Ubuntu Budgie late at night or anything that's after hours. This is a ton to ask from somebody. So when you're sending in a bug report, you're like, listen, idiots, of course this should be highlighted in yellow. (laughs) You know, you got to kind of keep in mind that they're doing this to help out the greater good, the greater community. And uh, you know, but those open bug reports, opening those are important. Donating to the projects is important. And I also say, you should especially feel guilty if you're using open source and not donating if you're making money off it. So if you are got a oh, YouTube yeah. channel sure. and you're using OBS and all this stuff and you're making revenue from YouTube and then you're not donating anything back, I mean, you wouldn't have your ability to do your channel without that software. So certainly giving some of your money uh, from there is is important.
3: If you don't mind, Ryan, I'd like to dovetail onto that. The truth is... It does. I think there's this perception out there that if Wirecast costs $600, that if you're going to stream with OBS and you're going to do your duty back to the open source community, that you have to give $600. And I, I want to make the sure point. that we're clear. It doesn't have to be a large donation. $20 goes a long way. Consider if you're an OBS developer and somebody gives you 20 bucks, that's a pizza. Any developer worth of salt, that's what? Like four hours worth of work that you can get off of a single pizza? So, right. It doesn't have to be hundreds of dollars. It doesn't have to be bank breaking. Donate, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Every little bit helps.
1: Absolutely. Sometimes it's even about just the appreciation. You know, it's not always right. about a monetary value of I'm going to make money doing this. Sometimes it's just kind of a, hey, good job. You know, thanks for your time.
3: Yeah. And and so, and emails go a long way to do that. I know that, that we as content creators always appreciate that, but I will tell you, it Even no matter how small the amount of money is, even if it's a dollar, it just it has a different feel when somebody when somebody appreciates something so much that they give something up in appreciation for you. And so traditionally we do that with dollars, but it could be anything else that just it it inspires people to want to do more of what they're already doing.
0: Yep. So I'm going to go through the list now that we've kind of covered our personal reasons and a lot of this we covered in our discussion but source code and open source is freely available to its users that's not the case in a proprietary solution ability to take this source code modify it and distribute your own version of it so you don't like what somebody's doing like Dustin was talking about you can go take that you can fork it you can make your own you can modify it you can customize it for your business you have control you're not just buying a license that allows you to rent it. Just like Windows, you're not renting the operating system like you do if you're using Microsoft Windows. You actually, when you get this installed, this Linux installed on your machine, you have full control of what you can do with that machine. You don't have to uh, have messages popping up and typing in 50,000 different licenses. So there's no license restrictions in there. That was one of my favorite freedom moments of being on Linux is like, I want to try out a new distro. I've got to reload all of my software on there and not having to sit there and find all of the registration keys and licenses and then go through call-in prompts to get Microsoft to unlock the license because they think I installed it on more than one computer and all of this stuff is there's so much freedom in being able to do that. And of course, as Michael mentioned, we're talking about free as in freedom, not free as in fear here. So some, it doesn't have to be free as in money. Some of these, um, services can be charged for, especially if they're adding extra things in there. But for the most part, you don't see that in general because they're wanting to give this out to the community. And all they're asking back in general is some donation of your time or, or money, if you can give a small donation in those cases to help out. You've got the user freedom. You've got, we discussed licenses. You don't have to wait for some distributor to fix your bug report or fill your request. And of course, the community The community everybody talks about in Linux. Why is it the greatest thing? Because you can sit there and hang out with Dustin, who works on Ubuntu Budget. You can hang out with Martin. You can hang out with Philip and Manjaro. You can hang out with all of these people who actually build these amazing things. And that's pretty awesome and completely unique to open source.
1: Well, it's the accessibility factor, right? It's information, it's people, it's the software. It's Everything is just so readily there that you can take it and kind of do whatever you want with it.
0: Absolutely. So without open source, we have no Linux. We have no freedom to know what might be hidden in the code, no accountability, no competition to the big business. So next time you hear somebody out there just throwing out, ah, oh, just use whatever you want. That's fine if they have to. But I would say as a community, we should be steering through. We should be encouraging people to use the open source solutions, maybe not discouraging them if they have to use a proprietary one, But I think our direction may be going too far over the one direction of saying, use whatever you want. Uh, Open source is very important, and I think it's very important as a community. And for all the new people we bring into the community to make sure they understand why open source is such an important thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And to close out, Dan leaves his comment. Our patrons are hanging out with us here live. Open source is important to me for several reasons. Most important on a personal level is that I can contribute to help make it better. It defines the real definition of community for me. We are indeed stronger working together. Next is the idea of security. Code can be audited and fixes happen more rapidly. So, all in all, open source, very important. Thank you all to our patrons for sharing your thoughts on it as well. Side
1: note here the one thing I always wonder though, uh, when people say go use what you want, what's the context? Are they saying it as in uh, something's not working for you and therefore you go look at something else? Like, is it like what's the real message behind it? Like, that's what I'm kind of I think there's a little bit of because, mixed
2: messaging, really. Yeah. Cause because, there, people say it without saying, like, what's the content? Did you look for the other thing? And you're just like, I think the issue was that there was on one side at one point there was, if you didn't do use open source that your you know, you're, you're doing something awful. You're, you're, you're actually mm-hmm. hurting the community or something like that versus saying, you know, just consider the options first and consider open source first. So yeah. it was at one point, there was just like the hardcore, if you're not using open source, you're doing something super awful. And then people were responding with like, it's not that bad. You can use whatever you want as long as it gets the job done and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like, it went from one extreme to another without considering yeah. the, the main focus should be that middle of saying that open source is important, and you should look. For, you should look for open source first. But if you can't have a, if your job or your whatever you need to do is not possible in open source, at least in an efficient way or in a way that makes it practical, then it's okay to go for the proprietary option. Yeah. But if you can, then consider it. Like I know yeah. that for a fact that I could do a video editing. And all that stuff and proprietary software, like, you know, even with like Premiere Pro or something like that. But I choose not to do that. I choose to use Kdenlive Mm -hmm. because it allows me to use an open source tool and I'm able to do it in a streamlined way. I had to work around certain things to get that to be done, but I made it possible and I like my workflow. So I think that's just an issue that people, you know, went from one extreme to the other.
3: I guess I, I would slightly disagree with that if I could respectfully Um no. I, I, what I would tell <laughs> what I, what I, what I typically tell people when they say I can't use open source, I can't do my work on Linux. It, what I tell people is it's about deciding which problems you want to solve. Does LibreOffice work the exact same way as Microsoft office? No. Can you get all of the same things done in LibreOffice that you can get done in Microsoft Office? Yes. How do I know that? Because Red Hat, a, a $34 billion company, is able to get all of their work done in LibreOffice. As if you want to go on the small side, you say, well, I don't have $34 billion. That's, that's why I can't get stuff done. Well, UltraSpeed Technologies has a grand total team member of seven, and we're able to get all of our work done on a substantially smaller budget using only LibreOffice. So it works in very big scale. It works in very small scale. It, but do we solve problems? Do we have challenges? Of course we do. Every business does, no matter what software platform you're using. And so I guess what, what I always tell people when they say, well, I don't know if I could transition my workflow. You can you abs- every there's, there's no workflow that can't be transitioned to Linux. It's just you're going to solve different problems. The only time
1: I find there's issues is it, it's kind of like all these different instant messenger formats. If people are not there, that's when you can't use it. So the Network same effect. thing yep. yeah, so the same thing happens Good when point. say you work with multiple different companies, right? Mm-hmm. Say you interact with and they are like here's just the super easy example. I know a lot of finance departments have a problem because of the advanced macros in Excel. Mm-hmm. They literally can't do their job unless everyone's on that same version yep. because they can't exchange the data. Now, that in some ways, it's just the exact reason why maybe they should look at open standards. But the reality is in the world today, it doesn't always work that way. And so I'm just going to argue that maybe in very specific use cases, or at least maybe more than we even realize, there's certain times where you literally can't do your job. Mm -hmm. But I think the more important aspect is coming down to evaluate whether there's actually truth to that. Mm-hmm. Whether there's I uh, I don't know, sort of a mental preference, whether there's a question of time, maybe even laziness to make that transition. And maybe there's just the and cost. The, yeah, exactly. And, and cost of your time, cost of your money, all, all of it. So,
3: and, and so, I, and I have, uh, you know, I've got, I have personal firsthand experience with stuff like that. You know, we went to yeah. our accountants and we said, we are using beans books and they go, we've never heard of that. I said, well, it's an open source platform sponsored by system 76 works a lot like QuickBooks. They said, well, you'll either use QuickBooks or we won't be your accountant. And I said, okay, I will find myself a different accountant. And so I went to a different accountant and said, hi, we use Beanbooks. And they went, great, we'd be happy to learn how to do that. Turns out it's very easy to export out of Beansbooks and import into their, their version of QuickBooks that they were using to do the accounting. Now, was I able to use uh, Beansbooks to do my job? Yes, was it a problem free experience of course not what problem did i solve i solved the problem of finding an accountant that was willing to work with the confines of my business and so and and that, that that's what i mean when i when i when i tell people when i say you have to look at what you're trying to accomplish and a lot of people look and they say i can't find the way to make uh i can't find the way to cut a video clip in half in lightworks i don't know how that works and i say to them what what is your goal what are you trying to accomplish well i'm trying to cut this clip no 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 what are you actually trying to accomplish well i'm trying to edit this video okay so let's start from that premise you want to produce a video and you want to use a linux editor to do that let's find and and then turns out again we can get the same we can get to the same end goal i've either i've i've had an accountant go over my books or i've produced a video whatever I've just had to solve different problems. Whereas a Windows user might have the same software, so they're not having to search for a different accountant because everybody uses QuickBooks. They have a different problem. They have to wait on hold for an hour and a half while they wait for Intuit to answer the phone to activate their version. Oops, you went over two and a half years. Well, if it's over two and a half years, Intuit won't activate that version for you anymore. There's no support. So unless it goes through the automatic activation, if you have any problems importing your your QuickBooks file, your only choice is to upgrade to the latest version of QuickBooks, which then comes with another two years of support different problems.
1: The other problem too is I think unless you're a person who's involved in this community and kind of understands what that encompasses, sometimes I suspect the average person doesn't know how to broker a proper evaluation between the open source and the commercial alternative. And a lot of times they'll just take the path of least resistance or it's who's guiding them, right? Like Mm -hmm. who's in their peripheral of people that's saying, hey, use this. It's great. I do this. It's perfect. I get it done. You know, like unless you have someone who's kind of familiar with some of the alternatives and why people probably just don't even
0: Well, I think that's the important thing to your point, Dustin, is that, you know, we're not saying there there are certain situations where your company may lock down and you have to use the solution. They don't give you an option. You work for a big corporation. They're not Red Hat. They're not an open source. So they're like, no, we're using Word and you better use Word too. And that's Mm -hmm. it. Those those we're not talking about. And we're also not saying if somebody says, hey, I just like using Word that you should go make fun of them and put a bunch of pressure on them and make them feel like crap either. What we're saying is, that we should all be at least guiding as a community people towards open source solutions. Oh, that's great. You like Office. What are some of the features that are in Office that we don't have over here in LibreOffice? And you may, they may come back and say, I've never even heard of that. Oh, let me yep. show you LibreOffice. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Instead of this idea that, yeah, Word's great, man, it's awesome. Microsoft's great. We love them. Everything everybody does in proprietary world's awesome. Adobe's amazing. Definitely boot in the Windows to use it. Like that's kind of what I'm seeing the comments become yeah. like. Mm-hmm. And I just think we're going too far with, yeah, maybe we went too far with, you know, even we made jokes on this show that we originally started realizing people don't take it as jokes anymore. So we had to cut them out. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we had to to adjust as well because people take things too seriously. There are the hardcore, everything has to be open source folks that go too far. And then I think there's this other side now that's popping up that we're going too far with, let's all go proprietary because let's remember the big things here security, privacy and accessibility for everyone. You're not going to solve that in the proprietary stuff. It's just not going to happen.
1: There you go. There's another show, How to Evaluate Open Source for Your
2: Use.
0: Ooh, nice.
2: I like it. And we also need to check out for our middle ground in the sense of like, just keep in mind that when you, when you say to someone that proprietary is awful or it's just evil or something like that, you're just going to make people just stop listening to you. So the way that I look at it is that, you know, when these uh, snaps and flat packs and other software where they're trying to have like proprietary software create uh, support on the Linux platform, you first get them into the platform. And then talk to them about the open source, because if you gradually bring them in, you're able to actually convince them to transition at some point rather than, oh, we're never going to use your stuff unless it's open source. Like that part is going to always create a big barrier and a big block to them. So first, get them on the platform, then go for the open source.
3: I, again, I have to respectfully disagree, Michael. The I, I have found a lot of success in first telling people, hey, you're on Windows 10. You're comfortable with Microsoft Office. You're comfortable with, with Microsoft Edge. Keep using all that stuff to begin with. Let's start with one thing at a time. You need a graphics application. You want to be able to make some cool whiz-bang posters or flyers and you want to print those off. Let's start with Inkscape. Most people don't have a lot of experience with vector graphic drawings and so any program is, is, is new territory for them. Start them with Inkscape. Then once they're comfortable with that, then maybe you swap Outlook out for Thunderbird or, you know, and, and slowly and over time you start swapping things out. Microsoft Office with LibreOffice and they become familiar with these open source tools in a limited capacity while they're on the same platform that they already know and understand. And then once they're already using all those applications You can swap that platform out from underneath, and then the icons are in a different place. And they go and find them, but it's the same applications that they already know, and all the menus are in the same place, and the switch to open source has become complete.
0: I love that because you're slowly building future Arch users.
3: You're slowly building trust,
2: Well, I also want to say that I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And we were just talking, we're talking about the same thing in a different direction where you're saying mm-hmm. gradually move yeah. people from, uh, from using proprietary to open source and then br- introducing them to Linux. So you're talking about the individual gradual structure. And I was referring to the business corporation gradual structure of you know, when you ha- when you want to con- convince someone who's making software and they're making like a proprietary software, it's very mm-hmm. hard to convince them to use open source. And if you just attack them because they're not then it's the same you want to gradually right. get no, them to no, do that so it's kind of like yeah, the same agree- thing and in a reverse direction
3: we're in agreement that that attacking people is never beneficial in any capacity other than when we're trying to troll michael but yes as
2: naturally. far
3: as, as as far as i think the order is important at least to me the other thing i'll just throw in there sometimes an intermediary step is in order your boss says we use slack and you say well i'm an open source guy and i don't use slack and they go no we use slack and we use linkedin you can use services like same Room, same Room.io, and, um, and you can exist inside of your personal IRC server and you can tie it to your company Slack or Microsoft Teams or 8x8 or whatever. And all of those individual platforms where somebody sends you a LinkedIn message, that gets delivered on your IRC instance. Somebody sends you a Skype message, that gets delivered on your IRC instance. Or maybe you're into Matrix and so that, all those things get tied into there. And so you can use those third-party services sometimes as a, as a stopgap. So that you can get yourself on an open source and free platform. And then other people can come over and say, well, that's really nice. So like seven different things, they all come into one place. How'd you do that? And you say, oh, this is how I do it. And eventually what you find out is everybody winds up on that open source alternative. And so sometimes that intermediary step can be a nice way to transition. Oh, yeah.
1: And
0: absolutely. then they
3: become users. users. Until security right. comes going and keep stomps going on today. you for
2: moving the data out. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: There's that too. But... Uh... Yeah, I think we agree for the most part. Just a gradual approach. I was talking more more about the convincing the companies to do it versus the individual, but I completely agree sure. about the individual. you starting them first with the open source and swapping out a few of things, and then once they, you're like, "Hey, you want to use Linux? You're like, can I use all the software?" Like, well, turns out, yeah, you can. It's called Arch. <laughs> okay, where you keep going back to the guy?
3: Like, sure. He's not wrong. That's how not, you get an Arch user. That is true.
2: So we got some interesting news recently related to cute and KDE, of course, but also so, of course, I've had a lot of comments and people asking me about my opinion on this. And I always told them, wait for the show. I talk about it in the show. And I that was just more of a way to say, I don't know what I think yet. So I'm going to find out when we can deal with the show. And I still don't know what I think yet. But here's what's happening. So the Qt company is saying that they're saying that they're hurting for money and apparently considering they're, you know, doing a interesting thing that will create some open source issues in the sense of like releasing some cute releases for paying customers only for up to twelve months, and then they would be open source and people will be able to use it then. Uh so this is on top of the news that in January the Qt company was only going to make the LTS releases available in the same way of just to paying customers. So there's gonna cre- there's creating a possibility that it's Gonna make a break point between open source and cute. So KDE's Olaf, I'm. There's no way I'm gonna pronounce that name correctly. He says last week the company suddenly informed both the KDE EV board and the KDE Free Cute Foundation that the eco- economic outlook caused by the coronavirus put more pressure on them to increase short-term revenue. As a result, they are thinking about restricting all cute releases to paid licenses. Uh, paid license holders for the first twelve months, they are aware that this would mean the end of contributions uh, for via over the open governance in practice and Olaf also goes on to say they announced the LTS release of Cute will only be available for paid license holders and it's still unclear which in it, if this implies the contributions to Cute for and for the sharing of the security fixes between the various pro, uh, parties including the Cute company and the many Cute experts contributing as well as the KDE community and Linux distributions so there's a lot of stuff going on and there's also some thing that there's possibility that they might change their mind or whatever but the Cute company has gone has replied to some of the responses in saying that there have been discussions of various internet forums about the future of Cute's open source in the last 2 days. The contents do not reflect the views or plans of the Cute company. The Cute company is proud to be committed to its customers open source and the Cute governance model. Except Wait, that they what's might that mean? I don't know. That was the like, there was a bunch of like responses from different sides, and then they're like, one time, like, hey, let's just throw out a blurb and hopefully this will make the waters calm or whatever.
0: So, there's the cute foundation, which is trying to charge, and then there's the cute company that's like, no, we're still open source. And then there's no, I think it's the reverse, and then there's the cute company, no, the cute company is the the one
2: that's doing the charging. Okay, and then there's also the there's a Katie, there's a cute. The KDE Free Cute Foundation is a was a foundation created back in the 1999 when it was an issue with was is Cute proprietary and can we use it. So in a conjunction with Trolltech, I'm pretty sure Trolltech was the people who owned uh, Cute at the time had like agreed to KDE and they created this foundation to make sure that if there was ever a problem uh, licensing or whatever that KDE would not be like you know set out in the dark and you know ignored. And this is still true. So like the future of KDE and Qt, there there's an there's an agreement in place because of this foundation that says that if the cute company discontinued the development of the free edition of cute under the required licenses, then it means the foundation has the right to relicense cute under a BSD style license or any other open source license they want to. So it would basically mean that there's a fork for it and cute would become you know, uh, two different versions of Qt. I don't know if they would rename it or whatever. So are but- we all
0: switching to GNOME and GTK or what's up? I, I don't know. You got to tell me. What are we doing no. here? Oh, okay. Just checking.
2: I mean, personally, I think the the unfortunate thing is that this is just a needless issue of having to deal with the licensing is like you can say that there is a commercial aspect and they need to do it but to lock out open source is' just a huge mistake because one of the main benefits of, that cute has ever had over the years is all of this open source work that they've been benefiting from so I hope that they reconsider and they and there is still time for the reconsidering uh if the options are you know they, they they're basically saying that cute thinks that there's an agreement that kde needs to meet with them and to, in order to do it and there's like com- uh, compromises on both sides or whatever that needs to happen. I don't know, but I hope the Qt company uh, recognizes that the open source aspect of the toolkit is an incredibly important piece. And they've had it for years, so it's ridiculous to drop it all of a sudden. Well, is this
0: a situation to try to play devil's advocate a little bit where Qt company has other people coming in, forking, taking their ideas, commercializing it? They're not making money it, it- I don't know. Have they really tried to go out to the community saying, Hey, we need more support. We need some financial backing here. I I've not seen it. If it I don't think is, that they've actually tried to hit my news way. front.
1: Yeah. Not that well, way. they're a commercial entity, right? So I don't know how people would react to that. Right. Like that's like any proprietary company come in and say, Hey, you should, donate
2: to us. I I just think that there should be some kind of, you know, collaboration between the two to find a way to make this not happen because this would be bad if it happened because it guarantees that that cute is going to be forked like at that point because if there's no way that they're going to drop cute and there's no way that they're going to be able to just ignore cute for a year and then all of a sudden they're like hey now we get updates. There's that's never going to work. So there would be a, a fork of the cute toolkit. And maybe that'd be a good thing. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. It depends on who forks it and if there's a company backing it or something like that. But I think that Cute, as a toolkit is the best toolkit that we have available for the open source developers and stuff like that. And I think that Kitty Plasma is one of the reasons why it's fundamentally awesome is because of Cute. So I don't think that there's there's really nothing that I could say right now that, I, that would be either way would be great, like good for this. Situation, and it, it so, keeps I don't so know.
0: powerful because of its portability. You can throw it on tablets. You can throw it on phones, which we've seen. You can throw it on TVs. You can put it pretty much on any device out there. It's very universal. That's what makes yes. it so powerful. So to lose it in the open source community would be a major blow to the yes. community. I
2: mean, th- their argument is that they're not going to abandon open source. They're just going to time restrict it. So it would still be open-ish. And that's true to a point, but it's like, you know, that would basically, if they were to, if KDE were to accept that decision, then they would have to wait a year in order to get the software that they would need to then work on it. So it just forcibly puts KDE in a, in a position where they have to stop for a little while versus, you know, if they forked it, then they wouldn't have to and they could just start working on it again. And I don't know. So I, I think that Qt is a very powerful tool. It's more than just a cross platform aspect. It's also super flexible and modular and, It's a lot better on resources than other options. And by the way, we should mention,
0: Michael, that this isn't just KDE. So if you don't use KDE and you're like, I don't care what happens here, you would be shocked how many applications you're probably using in open source that are Qt-based.
2: Qt is a very powerful toolkit and on other platforms, not just Linux. Uh, And I understand, especially, you know, this is kind of like an example that people will use. Like, well, this proves why Qt can't be used and that kind of thing. It's still... A very, very good toolkit, and I would still argue that it's the better toolkit. I just don't want them to, you know, if they abandon open source, that is going to be a very big problem. So I hope that they can find an agreement between KDE and Q for this not to happen. Like you said, it's not just a KDE thing, but I think KDE has the most pull. So I, I wish the best to KDE, and hopefully they can make this not happen. But I don't know. Uh, like, again, what are some
0: things people can do in this case is is giving donations, which is always a good idea, to KDE group. Uh, gonna help? Is this something where we need to get our pitchforks out and go there and nicely say, "Hey, cute company, you need to reconsider this because you're gonna really hurt us," type of thing? Or yeah, I think the-
3: our pitchforks out and
0: nicely say. Well, yes. you can have a pitchfork out, and I can nicely say, "Hey, Noah, get off my lawn, or else." Yeah, or you just—I'm just
2: standing there holding it for balance. That's all the pitchfork yeah. is for. That's—I mean, yeah,
0: don't fine. don't mind the pitchfork <laughs> that's there. Just mind the fact that you're still on my lawn. Yeah, exactly. The between
1: threatening and actually stabbing.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but I think that is something we could do is just go to go to the Q company, let people know that how many people are, that how important this is, but don't like attack them and say that they're going to ruin all of open source work because that's just not true. If they did to make this decision, it would be forked and there wouldn't be like it just like it wouldn't be ideal for these things to happen, but it wouldn't be the like a horrible end of everything. It would just be it would create a a a kink in the armor and everything. Yeah, it would just put a, a wrench into the machine and like, you know, it's just gonna be an issue. But it wouldn't be like a horrible thing. It would just be like, well, now there's another thing we're gonna deal with. So if you wanna send something to cute, let it, we'll have a link in the show notes to be more details about what this, how this is happening and everything. So I think that it would be horrible if cute does it. I don't I I hope they don't, but I don't really know. So
1: as so long as they're releasing the security patches and not holding any of that stuff back, it probably is going to be workable in some capacity.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's Because they aren't abandoning open source, they're just time limiting it, I suppose. I still, don't do that. And wish for the best is all I can say. I
1: don't know about all of you, but I've definitely been spending a bunch of time at home looking mm-hmm. for different things to do, getting kind of bored, trying to break the monotony. One way that you could try to do that is to use the digital making at home project from raspberry pi it seems as though they're putting together weekly tasks or projects that whether you're beginner to programming or novice they are going to provide step-by-step videos and projects that can kind of get you going and start developing on the raspberry pi they describe themselves along the lines of whether you wrote your first line of code years ago or minutes ago or you've yet to get started with digital making at home, we're inviting you on the digital making adventure each week. The idea is to make it very approachable, code along videos. And the best part is they are not charging you a thing. 100% free. Nice. They've long discussed the power of owning a Raspberry Pi. And this is just simply one more reason to add to the list. It's a a great project and ideas that you can keep your kids busy because they're all probably going a little stir crazy in your houses or your apartments. Not everyone's got a backyard. So there you go. Throw them in front of another screen and get them doing something uh, productive.
0: Yeah, I think this is amazing. If you go and look at their website, they have a ton of projects out there. Learn to code from scratch. They have getting started with the Raspberry Pi. They have learned to code in Python, but they're all... They have build robots, build websites, create an app for your device. They have all these projects, but they're all written for various skill set levels. So if you're just getting in, you want to teach your kids to have something to play with, you have that option. Maybe you want to learn it for as a work skill. The way they do the classes are, are very fun and interactive. And sometimes some of these things that they create for kids, like the video games to learn the code and stuff, I'll use that stuff because it reinforces, if I'm trying to learn a code, some of the things that I'm learning and it makes it more fun and interactive. So as a parent, you can get involved. It's a great family project. And I love, this is perfect timing, obviously with everything going on for them to release something like this now and completely free. So you can get your kids started in the geek life early. You can raise them right. And then your next step is to get them in arch. Yeah. Well, the best part is
1: start with this, but there's so much content in the Raspberry Pi ecosystem that you, they don't have to stop here. You're just sort of giving them the initial go and they can go as far as they want.
3: Absolutely. Those of us with AMD GPUs may fondly recall Valve's work on the recently on ACO or AMD compiler. They started with the goal for the best possible code generation for game shaders and the fastest possible. Compilation speed. Well, Intel decided that they wanted to borrow some of that code and see if they could make it work on Intel. It turns out they can, since both companies contribute heavily to open source solutions like OpenVL and OpenGL, excuse me, and Vulkan in the GPU arena. It makes sense that code can be shared as well. The results are a 10% improvement on performance on Intel-based GPUs. Now, considering that Intel GPUs are by far the most popular GPU, this is a major gain for a lot of users out there x who was doing the mad science experiment, stated that the best results are often seen in Doom, Tomb Raider, and Batman games with WXVK. If all goes well, this will be merged in the upcoming Intel driver, which is shipped in Mesa 20.1. So if you want to take advantage of this, you're going to need a distro that merges it in an upcoming release or a nice rolling release. Now, this is something that I thought was pretty fascinating, and I think it really underscores uh, an important lesson in uh, in open source, because what we're finding is, whereas previously you had all of these companies that were competing for uh, for different performance and 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 to to earn your business, now what you have is people like Jason Ekstrand, who uh, was a former member of the Intel open source uh, 3D driver team, and he started looking and saying, "Hey, I bet you I could take this code and 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 move it over here." And so he went to the ACO and and, and took that shader compiling uh, that was spearheaded by by Valve and dropped it in to see if you could get that to work on Intel. Now that only works because AMD is open source and Intel's contributing to open source and all of the developers that are banging on code are open source and so it becomes this gigantic team effort to deliver the best possible experience to the user regardless of what company is selling the hardware. So this makes Intel better. It makes AMD better. It makes the code base better. It make, it means that when they go back to their R&D labs, it can't just be about some sort of software that they release because then anybody could take that and use it. They're going to have to make better hardware. So I think this is a, a win all the way around for every company all around. There are no losers. It's uh, it's it's everybody wins the game. I love that.
2: Yeah. And it's yep. actually, it's it's perfect and awesome that we they did this recently so we can actually put it in a, in a show that just happens to be talking about open source and how great it is. It's, it's mm-hmm. like we planned that.
0: It's like we planned it.
2: So the software spotlight this week is DIA or DIA. I'm pretty sure it's DIA because it's based on diagrams. But anyway, this is a roughly inspired by a commercial program called Visio, though more geared towards the informal like diagrams for casual use. It can be used to draw many different kinds of diagrams and charts. It currently uses like special objects to help draw entity relationships, uh, UML diagrams, flow charts, network diagrams, and many, many other types of stuff. It is also possible to add support for new shapes by writing simple XML files or using subsets of SVG to draw the shape. And this is a really interesting application. I, I just t- I tested it out many times and I tried to do all kinds of different like charts and diagrams for like showing off different results and statistics for companies and clients. And then like all the times I would like come into like massive roadblocks of like, how do I get this done? And I just I don't want to spend all this kind of time and like building it into like a graphics application or whatever. And then I found Daya and I was like, oh wow. This saves so much time. So mm-hmm. I've mentioned that in my workflow uh, many times in terms of like giving out re- d- d- uh, charts and bar graphs and all kinds of stuff like that. So if you want to check it out, DIA is a great piece of software if you need to do any kind of thing with diagrams and charts.
3: You're probably familiar with RM to remove files, but what you might not understand is that there really is no such thing as deleting a file in an operating system. It's a concept that we've created for human beings. But it doesn't really exist from a technological perspective. That is to say, once something is written to a disk, there really is no way to unwrite it from the disk. When you remove a file, what it's actually doing is removing the entry in the table of contents so that the drive says that that space is now marked, is available to be written to by new data. And so your data isn't actually ever unretrievable until something else goes and overwrites the data. Well... There is a command in utility built into Linux specifically to address this purpose, and it's the shred command. So, for example, you might type shred tack z v u bob.txt. And what that's going to do is it's going to remove bob.txt and then it's going to overwrite that space with a bunch of zeros so that the the that the file cannot be recovered. Now it's important to note in order for this command to work properly, you have to be using a spinning disk. There in the in the modern era of Journaling file systems and SSDs that try to do all sorts of tricks. And, and black magic to try to keep your data safe and from being deleted, you really don't know where that data is being written. And that's why I always encourage people, if data security is a must for you, to encrypt the entire hard drive uh, when you get that SSD. And that's going to ensure that you won't be able to erase the data, but at least you can throw away the private key and the data is not useful to anybody. So if you're using an SSD, I wouldn't rely on the shred command to be able to, sh- to be sure that that file is gone. But if you're using it on a spinning disk and you're not using a fancy file system that tries to move and store things in different places and tries to keep your data from getting corrupt. If you're doing those two things, the shred command is going to work. Otherwise, you really should be using full disk encryption.
2: Yeah, and it's, that's a good tip. But also if you're using it for like data storage, because a lot of times people would use like data storage for a hard drive, you could use it on that as well and just apply it to that drive too.
3: What What do you mean data storage for a hard drive? I'm not...
2: Well, people, uh, you know, you don't you want to put it. You want to. It's, it's cheaper to get a hard drive in order to store the data, rather like if you have a lot of data, rather than like if you put it on a NAS or something like that. You could apply it mm-hmm. over, like just mount the drive and then use shred to do it that way. Even if you're using SSD for your operating system,
0: right? right. SSD does Noah's right, and you're both right. You should still use shred if you're wanting to get rid of that file. If you have an SSD, but Noah's right that you're even better off just using encryption, but why not just use shred as your default, especially if you want to get something as well, because it's still going to overwrite that data three times it's going to not
3: impossible to recover so I don't yeah I, I don't necessarily so so imagine this right the so let's walk through it so the the ssd write bob.txt to the ssd and the ssd let's just say it stores that in 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 memory chip number one for for the for our purposes it's obviously mm-hmm. a little bit more complex, slc mlc but so it stores it in memory chip number one and then i go and delete that file and says okay you can go ahead and rewrite um, but because of where leveling, it's not necessarily going to write the next file in memory chip number one. It's probably going to write in memory chip number 14 because where memory chip number one has already been written once. So let's make sure that all of the memory chips are written first, then we can go back and rewrite. Um, and and so then you use, let's say you shred and you say, okay, I'm going to go delete that. Well, shred the, the command from Linux is going to say, okay, mark, this as available now overwrite a bunch of zeros and a bunch of ones there's, you have no guarantee that that SSD is going to write all of those zeros and all of those ones to memory chip one. You're it might totally over- right
0: that there's no guarantee, but it's still a better practice. If there's a specific file to do that and keep it erased. Although to Gert's point you are limiting the lifespan of an SST because it has a limited amount of rights, but you're still overriding it three times with a bunch of zeros. It's going to make it much more difficult. Not going to be fully reliable to your point, but if it does, going to get rid of it i I guess we can agree to disagree i think the tip
2: here is that if you have hard drive using stuff you can use shred to save it if you're not using that you can definitely use encryption on your ssd and make sure that you have that because encrypting an ssd isn't as much of a pain that you have like if you were encrypting a hard drive you were dealing with like the load times of ridiculousness versus the ssd it's going to add a little bit of an await time but not that much
3: sure i challenge you to
0: a shred off noah
3: I, I just, I, the, the so here's the thing. There's no, it, it's not just like- I'm going to shred a
0: file. You try to recover it, buddy.
3: That, actually, I'd be okay with that. Do you want to do this? It's down. We take an SSD. No, here's what we do. We take an SSD. We format it with something that's journal like ext4. You uh-huh. create a file, you shred and delete it, and then mail me the hard drive, and I'll see if I can get the file back. I'd be it's totally there, down so. for that.
1: Yeah, we should do this. Bob.txt, here we come. Except, Ryan, the file has to have some consequence to it. Yeah, right, so like right. it has I'll
3: to be my personal, like- my put, your sin,
1: put your SIN number in a text file with your... Uh, Wait, Monk I aid. have to
0: put... No, I want Noah's SSN in there sure. and then he well, has yeah, to try to... Re- yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. That's better. Yeah, I don't want to use my stuff. That would be ridiculous. Yeah, we'll use Michael's. That'll be safe. Yes,
3: Michael's! Yeah. Where if Point. it gets out into the public and leaked to the Michael, Internet, give us your SSN care.
0: so we can write it down now because I'm going to do could this right just, after the show. Could you just
3: post that? Alright, so a, we're going to
2: replace the tip this week with something else so it's not so weirdly ridiculous. So what's the new tip that we're going to have, Noah? Use R.M.
3: What's wrong with the? Uh, what's wrong with the? I like this one. We have a whole.
2: Yeah. If it's going to include my data in your test, no yeah. way. I don't
3: like this one <laughs> what do you anymore. Mean? Why? Why do you have why? to be so selfish? Why don't do you have to? you have to, why why do you have to both contribute to the community? Yep.
2: Yeah. Don't you trust Shred? Come on. <laughs> no, I don't. Either you trust I, it or you don't. I'm not. I, you're the one making this claim, not me. I didn't put it in.
0: I didn't write the show notes. <laughs> if you think for one minute I'm just going to use Shred when I send it
3: to Noah, you're mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> I I get it there's I'm gonna I, get wreck it. That I get it file so that there's is- a there's a there's a lux encrypted drive I finally get through the lux encrypted drive there's a there's a there's a veracrypt container inside of there I get that there's a hidden <laughs> veracrypt container inside of that I get there and all of a sudden there's a link and says too bad I keep all my data local <laughs> Exactly I shredded it, <laughs> I
2: shredded it. <laughs> but, like I did shred it it was on a piece of paper and
0: I shredded that paper yes. There you go <laughs> Just write everything down manually. You'll be safe. So those who are looking to play the latest games on Linux, like Doom Eternal, no longer have to do manual voodoo to get the game working. Our friends at Valve and CodeWeavers have decided to make beta versions of Proton available before their official release. What does this mean? This means that all of the features that they're working on, that they're unlocking as they're they're developing the next version, you can start testing and utilizing right away. Now, you got to keep in mind it's in beta, so it's not going to work for everything. You may have little different bugs and things that you come across. But an example, they unlocked one of their latest betas. by all, all you have to do, by the way, is go to your Steam library, search Proton, go to the properties, and unlock the beta version, just like when you unlock beta versions of different games and things like that, when you right-click and go into properties of a game. So this allows things, for instance, in the 5.0-6 version that's in beta, fix Doom maternal DRM failures. This game requires the latest uh, video driver still, of course. Update DXVK to 1.6, which helps with Half-Life Alyx and Grand Theft Auto 4. Performance for graphical improvements for Resident Evil 2 and 3 with Direct 3D 11 and 12 modes. They got VR fixes in here and Devil May Cry fixes and Fallout 3 fixes. So it just allows you to get to these games that only work through Proton much faster by opening up the beta as it's in development. So just more awesomeness from the team of Valve and Code Weavers for us to take in. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Our patrons help keep this show going and get perks like access to live recordings and unedited versions of the show. If you can't make it live, you can still watch the whole thing. The best part is you can join for just a few dollars on Patreon or sponsors.
3: The Destination Linux Network also has a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. You can discuss the show's network with listeners from around the world all in one place so if you're looking for a live chat sessions then join us in our telegram group where we have over 1,300 members in the community interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux if you'd like to learn more we invite you to head over to destinationlinux.network. and we love hearing
0: from you so please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask us any burning questions you might have send a video comments to email address comments at DestinationLinux.org. Please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. Also, don't forget to go to the DLN store and pick up some swag from across the network of podcasts and shows. We have limited edition design. It shows off all the founding shows of Destination Linux Network. Grab yourself a hoodie, t-shirt, coffee cup today. Dustin even claims that wearing a DLN shirt has changed his entire life. This is a fact. He claimed that. I just said it, it, so. It's the only reason I got on here. There you go. CLN (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah.
2: And if you want more content from us, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out by going to youtube.com slash DOSGeek where you can find Ryan's channel where he'll fill your brains on hardware software and all things Linux. You can check out my content by going to tuxdigital.com where I do an in-depth weekly Linux news podcast called This Weekend Linux and other Linux-related content. You can find Noah at, at the Ask Noah Show Dot com where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him and he'll answer your questions for Linux, tech, business-related questions, all kinds of stuff like that. And Dustin, where can people find you?
1: Uh, predominantly at Twitter with uh, at Bashful Robot. And other than that, the Ubuntu Budgie forums.
2: Very nice. Make sure to check out the Destination Linux Network shows like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, and DLinux Stand Podcast, as well as all the other great content on Destination Linux Network. And also check out the Folding at Home group that Jason Evangelo made for the Destination Linux Network. Uh, hes You can check out that, and you can, join the, you can actually join the team by putting in the, the code 240869. You can just check the link in the show notes.
1: Everybody, have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye!
1: Thank you. See you next week. Have a good day.